0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. As our British listeners will be fully familiar with, there's a popular phrase in the UK that stems from the mid-90s advertising campaign of a wood dye and staining brand. That company was Ronseal. Seal, and the now-ubiquitous tagline is it does exactly what it says on the tin. In this way, I think we can describe the Whiskey Sour as a ronseal cocktail. Because ideally, you want both the whiskey and sour components of the drink to share equal prominence in the final profile of the cocktail. Of course, the tale of the Whiskey Sour is much more than that. And to my mind, the story of this drink in particular is one of evolution, the evolution of its sour component in its fresh and manufactured form, the evolution of whiskey, both commercial and craft, and the evolution of its very preparation and serve. It is in no way hyperbolic to describe today's guest as the ideal individual to tie all of those threads together. For the past 20-odd years, H. Joseph Ehrman has run the Whiskey Bar and San Francisco's second oldest saloon, Elixir. He's also held consulting roles that took him all over the country during the height of the cocktail renaissance. And more recently, he's been working with Fresh Victor, a company that produces high-quality, cold-pressed, fresh-juiced-based cocktail mixers. Like I said, there could hardly be a better guest for today's episode. Though we boast no commercial ties to wood-staining companies, this is the drinks-focused show that does exactly what it says on the tin, listener. And today, we're shaking up whiskey sours. We say this? Um, we're live today. We're not live today. We're never live because it's podcast recording. Um, this is the Cocktail College podcast, of course. Today, we're doing the Whiskey Sour and we're joined by H. Joseph Ehrman. H, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: This is a, a real iconic and fun drink for us to explore today. I'm certainly excited about it. One of the things, and this isn't a classic reference, but, you know, more recently, you know, the the whole Leonardo DiCaprio and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood ate whiskey sours. Um, we can maybe get into his somewhat dodgy looking preparation there, but... That's where my mind goes with this, from a cultural point of view. But just, just a great, like, great drink, great cocktail.
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's. I find it. I think of it as a fundamental formula, and this, the whiskey sour in particular, being the ultimate representation of the formula that's so core to everything we do.
0: Isn't it interesting? You know, just from the get go here that we do call out the ingredient the spirit specifically in this one whereas you have other drinks in the sour formula that don't apart from actually pisco but um you know much lesser and lesser known but you know like a daiquiri is the rum sour right but we're calling out the whiskey here
1: yeah and it's because it's so basic and and comes from a, a time when you know the selections were even different than today i mean we have all those selections but they were in their heydays and, and heyday of the you know mid to late 1800s and uh those were your choices you know those, those drinks were also basic it's like you want this drink and you want it in whiskey you want it in holland gin you want it
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah what do we know historically about this qu- this cocktail always good to run chronologically, keeps us on track here nicely. What do we know about the the, the history of the whiskey sour? Because, like you said, it is that classic formula. So are there any notable moments there where we, we we can kind of point to for the evolution of this drink?
1: Well, the sour concept goes back to the British Navy and, um, you know, the, the lime and scurvy and putting lime into grog with rum and that initial... I, you know, at least that's what most sources said, right? They, they point to the lime and the rum and the Navy and bringing that together. And then that leading to punch, you know, of course, punch being the, the precursor to, to the cocktail and that being a core component of, uh, that, that drink. And so if we see punch as the precursor to the sour. And as, you know, as Wonder says, the children, you know, the, sa- the punch is children, um, the sour being uh, becomes just the, the, the core of or the base of, of a multitude of more uh, complicated drinks, at least in, in flavor complexity. And you know, the Daisy being, in my mind, the, the primary spin that I, I take and a lot of people take in, in adding levels of flavor and complexity via liqueurs and i think when i look at you know they say that it it comes out of the i think the first mention of it was in the 1850s in the new york times um which leads on to uh, a publishing of a a newspaper i think in wisconsin in the 1870s that mentions a whiskey sour and everybody of course points to jerry thomas uh and the difference between the the fix and the sour, where the fix has a bunch of fruit in it and the lemon slice being the only sour component, or as, as again, as Wendrich says in his compendium, the Oxford compendium, mm-hmm. he goes sa- sweet and sour versus sour and sweet. And when he looks at the sour and sweet, but the focus being on the sour takes all the fruit out of the way. And it's like, this is, you know, the, the focus is really on it being more of a sour cocktail with some sweet balance to it. Yep, and you know the gin punch being the precursor really and the popularity of the gin and then that morphing into uh, the tolerance gin or santa cruz rum or whiskey and these these different choices of your sour it's the it's the whiskey sour that emerges as the the front runner as the most popular order from the 1870s on say and that i think you know, you start to see, you see it pop up in all the books, but with Thomas's book being the first one, and then it, it pops up in tons of other books after that. And I think the next major historical modification of it comes in the post-war era, when we see the mechanization, um, and change of our entire food system and everything becoming more convenient and you see sour, it's the, the evolution of the concept of sour mix, where it's no longer about the handcrafted cocktail of the pre-prohibition era as much as it is about the quick and easy. How do I make a whiskey sour? That rolls into the whole fifties and the Don Draper thing. And, you know, um, and what I think of is my parents making whiskey sours using powdered sour mix (laughs) (laughs) with the big neon cherry, you know, and a slice of orange in there and and that that's that's the sour i grew up seeing being made at my house and you know then you've got the 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 era after that of the bottled whiskey sour mix or sour mix and and you know the sour mix concept takes on this i don't know this merger of lemon and lime just this sourness with whatever the different sweeteners come into play and that era let's call it i don't know late sixties through the eighties, into the eighties till, till Dale pops up and changes things in Rambo room. Yeah. You know, that era of the artificial sour mix, which still goes on today till today, um, in a very big way, which is, you know, something I like to think my, my company, Fresh Victor, is trying to change. So.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and the, yeah, I would. I think we can definitely get into that later because I think very relevant to this to this conversation in the in the era, you know, that you're talking about just before the modernization. Um, would those mixes have been pasteurized? Would they have ever actually even seen real fruit? Or are we talking kind of manipulation with natural flavors and and maybe powdered acids? Like, what would those um what would those have have Comprised of.
1: Yeah, those were t- totally. I would say, you know, went more into that um, recreation via citric acid and other compounds that to create something that was shelf stable, never going to die. We can sell it forever. We're never going to lose money. Yeah. That was that. Again, the, that was the, the focal point of the entire food system until. We start to see a return to farmers markets and natural ingredients and and that. And so then you start to see some of those products mention things like made with real juice, you know, like a quote on the label. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's incredible
0: that that's something that becomes celebrated, right? That, you know, that you would expect anything other than.
1: Yeah. Now, with real juice, like that
0: yeah, what was it? Mind
1: altering concept.
0: <laughs> yeah, what was it before? Um, and sorry if I'm also kind of getting ahead of us here, but I notice we haven't mentioned egg white yet. And uh, this is obviously a facet of this cocktail that we will, of course, explore. But where does that pop in? Because I don't believe that that features in that kind of Jerry Thomas recipe that's that's so often like looked to as you know printed formula very early one um yeah where do we start to see the the egg white is that also to do with this kind of food systems evolving
1: i don't think so and and i don't know exactly but i believe it comes into play in in the mid 20th century and coming out of the kitchen um i would say even probably before that because there's some of that foam aspect plays into the, to the sour in the fifties and, and beyond like that, in that era, that mid 20th century cocktail era. And I think that's coming, uh, again, from a powdered form yeah. more so than, of uh, then that creates that froth than, uh, an actual real egg white. And then, you know, the, when the egg, I remember, you know, when I opened the elixir in 2003, which is almost 20 years ago now, that even then, when I would put an egg white into my whiskey sour, I had much more pushback from customers about salmonella and, you know, the riskiness of using raw egg and a drink Till now yeah. so there's a big change in just 19 years um, yeah. of that kind of comfort level with salmonella, what it is, how you get it, how do you, how do you transfer it? And so that I think could have been something that Scared people away and made them feel safer about a kind of mechanized version of sacrament mix.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think there is an argument to say that maybe for many different reasons. Well, I don't know. I, I I'm sure you can chime in here. But like the, the quality of powdered versus fresh in this front. Um, in today's day, though, 2022 or you know 2020s, um, is this is is this a drink that you think most people? Who know cocktails or who order it and it's not on the menu are they expecting that egg white in there or is there some pushback are, are people asking for it you know i'll take mine without egg white
1: i think it comes down to that delineation between the cocktail of you know aficionado or geek if you will and the common consumer um if you're just even somewhat into cocktails i think addressing the egg white in your drink is something that happens pretty early. So it's not like, you know, understanding the difference between a multitude of burnt bitters, that kind of level of geekdom, but it, cause it comes up almost right away and because the sour in general is so core to most drinks, um, I think that's a conversation that happens early. So in my bar being a whiskey bar and the amount of whiskey sours that we sell, we just, I look at it and I train my team in this way, the same way that I would train them on a martini or in Manhattan saying, you know, basically prod if they're not, if the customer isn't giving you the specs in their order, prod them up front for every bit of it. Yeah. Do you want, do you want egg white or not? What kind of whiskey do you want? Do you want that up or on the rocks? You know, which we have a, certainly a house style, but it's not stated anywhere. It's not on an, on a, a menu. And so, you know, basically anything that might be considered a house style is the way I drink it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but we don't, I don't impose that on anyone. I'd rather train everybody to draw that out. And I would say more often than not, our customers want the egg white.
0: Yeah. And is there also, is there another kind of cocktail that's as widely known as this, if if not more that can vary so wildly in in what you might be served, right? I mean, I guess maybe the old fashioned, just in terms of, especially if you're if you're ordering one of those in Wisconsin, say, or you know maybe that build with crushing the oranges and the cherry or whatnot. Like, you know, this is a drink that can just as easily be served up in a coupe or in a rocks glass with ice, right? And 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 both and with some maybe kind of quite wild garnishes.
1: Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And so many of these, just like the old, like I said, the, you said the, the old fashioned where I said the martini or Manhattan, like these things are so iconic and, and basic, but it gets to the fundamental lesson of, of understanding cocktails in that each ingredient is important in understanding those ingredients and how they come together is important for understanding how you're going to get the drink that is going to ultimately satisfy you the most. So when you understand what kind of whiskey you like in your drink and you understand your own preference for sweet or sour balance or imbalance and, you know, and, uh, and the texture of the drink that you want, you can always order it the way you want it. And if you have a good bartender who understands what you're saying, you're going to get it the way you want it Mm -hmm. and you're going to find the most value in that drink. And we teach, you know, I have have an events business called Elixir to go, obviously part of Elixir and that's all of our beverage catering essentially. But the majority of our business with Elixir to go is in corporate team building cocktail classes. And we do obviously lots of private ones too, for birthdays and weddings and fashion parties and such, but the bulk of it is in corporate. And that's a, a fundamental premise of the entire class is getting to understand how to order your drink. So that you can get the most out of your money, especially when you're spending upwards of 16 dollars a cocktail these days.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think I think part of th- that first step of of being someone who makes cocktails, right, is is understanding first, like you like you say there, how to order and and navigating those menus and and knowing what to expect. Which again is where this this drink is kind of interesting because, yeah, it's it it. it Anything, not anything, but many things could come your way. So it's it's a fun one. Um, we'll get into your preference shortly uh, on on that kind of build and that serve. But just kind of in general, what are you looking for from your from your whiskey sour? Um, if you are indeed using that egg white, is this is this as much a textural exploration as it is you know flavor, or are you looking for just sour essentially?
1: No, I think, you know, as we've mentioned earlier about Jerry Thomas positioned it, that it's meant to be like sour is the lead and, and people call them sours. They don't call them sweets. It is sweet and sour, but sour is the lead. And so as with any drink, uh, I, you know, I would always say you, the, the principal ingredient is the, is the spirit. And that's ultimately you want to be able to taste the spirit. So you've got to have at least enough of the spirit to punch through and it's got to be you know this the spirit's got to be able to do that it's got to punch through so my preference is for bottled and bond american whiskey whether it's bourbon or rye uh my personal preference is rye or or um rye high rye bourbon
0: interesting Um,
1: because i like that spice and i like that to really punch through you know something like a four roses is gonna really carry its weight but um or i would like you know like a um written house rye makes a great whiskey sour or even a knob creek rye Ooh. you know this higher rye content high proof whereas you know four roses yellow label is a is 90 proof i'd rather be up upwards of 100, because it's going to kick through. And if I do that, even with the the new bottle and bond maker's mark, that's going to kick through. But that weeded bourbon is going to be softer and sweeter.
0: Yeah. And and, and so, you know, to your point, we're getting those characteristics from other aspects of the cocktail, whereas that spice that you might get from from a rye or a high rye bourbon, as you mentioned there, there's really not many other areas where you can get that in this drink right or where you can impart that to this drink
1: no no not at all and understanding your whiskey is is key to the base If if the principal ingredient is the whiskey that's where it all starts you know so understanding your whiskey and how you like your whiskey drinks is is core to moving forward then it gets to sweet and sour balance and you know lemons fresh lemons and fresh lemon juice is Is key to this because that you get that brightness, that Christmas, that it doesn't get, you know, changed uh, by any chemical compound or oxidation or or anything like that. So that's that fresh lemon is is the next thing I would say that you want to focus on is making sure you have good lemon juice.
0: And before we do get into before we go any further on the lemon, just just one um, kind of. Other note as we're exploring the whiskey, there, if, if you will, um, you mentioned rye, but am I right in thinking we're not talking some of those rye bottlings that we're seeing emerge on the market now that might be, you know, upwards of 95%, if not 100% rye, you know, that are maybe going to be very herbaceous or have some of that caraway character? Like, is that taking us too far from, from your preferred profile?
1: You know, I, I, again, that's such a personal call and I don't, I don't think so. If you look at like a Rittenhouse rye, it's more of a traditional Mashville rye. That's not, you know, a huge hit of rye, like the, like the Knob Creek is, like I said, or a bullet rye, it's like those, you know, that MGP style of, um, uh, of the rye grain coming forward. I, I really do enjoy that personally. Yeah. Um, but it understanding that it's different from a traditional mash bill <clears throat> is, is important, um, to mostly just understanding what those flavor characteristics are. And, uh, as long as it's, I think strong enough proof to punch through There's, you know, there's so many good, I'm, I'm a, I'm a judge in the American Distilling Institute competition have been for over decades. So I've been primarily a, a, a whiskey judge that entire time I've, I've gotten the opportunity to taste american craft whiskeys as the entire industry has evolved over the last 15 years or so and it's a huge leap forward today from where it was 15 years ago like these they figured it out there are great american whiskeys being made all over the country yeah and it's thrilling um high quality new approaches different flavors whereas back then when we were making right you know i bought a i bought a barrel of Sazerac rye 2007 was first um rye barrel sold private barrel sold in California um of that and everybody's like are you crazy you're buying rye whiskey 2007 <laughs> <laughs> and I was like I'd love it but you know you could get that's what you get you get Sazerac you could get Rittenhouse yeah the choices were limited and there was also all this confusion thanks to like, again, like Alina my mom like what people used to say rye her generation, they thought you were talking about Canadian. And so there yeah. was market there was confusion as to what right whiskey was.
0: <laughs> and um what about I think, you know, you mentioned some of the fine work that's that's being done these days and fun the products being put out by craft distillers, but I think we've definitely reached this moment where we know things don't need to be heavily aged, right? I think there was the early craft whiskey distillers here in the US are the modern era right like Mm -hmm. there was maybe this feeling that they just need time to mature but I can think of so many bottles out there right now that are two three years old that I'm like this is phenomenal it absolutely meets the what I think of when I drink whiskey but it's also unique and high quality would would you agree with that absolutely
1: and I think I will even admit to my own error and I know I would say one of the cool things about the ADI competition of the different competitions I judge is that we have to write down a a full page of, of criticism on that spirit, on every glass that we tested or tasted and give the distiller some feedback. Like what, if I don't like this, what don't I like about it? If I do like it, what, and how do, how do I think you could change it? And in those early days, I was constantly writing in almost every single sheet put it in a bigger barrel, use better seasoned wood, let it rest longer because they all had the same kind of problems. They were getting green wood notes that were destroying the whiskey. It wasn't aged properly. And these small barrels, they're just trying to get it out. It looks like whiskey, but it doesn't taste like good whiskey. And they really, I got to hand it to them that they they all figured it out and they figured out how to get really good tasting whiskey out in a shorter period. It's like you said, there's Two, three, four-year whiskeys that are great. One of my favorites is from locally that we serve at my bars, um, uh, Wright and Brown out of Oakland. Makes phenomenal rye whiskey, and it's a three to four-year aging.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's, a re- it's honestly like I, 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 think you start to see some phenomenal results even at that, you know, relatively young age, and also even with the caveat that you know we're we're aging it here in the states versus you know a Scotland or or even a Canada or an Ireland. Um, You mentioned some of the profiles of whiskey that you would like to use specifically for your version of this drink, or if if you're drinking this cocktail, do you want to be able to almost call that whiskey out? Like, is this a cocktail where we're trying to make the whiskey shine, or are you just looking for that general profile? Like, do you expect, for example, if I made this cocktail for you with Knob Creek Rye, would you expect to be able to call it out by name, or is it more like no, you're just enjoying that profile? If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't expect to call it out by name, but I would be able. I I would probably be able to call it out by categories, like this is a rye whiskey, um, and just you know, just, you know because I can taste it, especially one of those ninety five hundred percent ryes. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's you know what's key to picking the right whiskey for a whiskey sour is that strength of character and the flavor because certain whiskeys are not that great like personally i don't like a a jameson whiskey whiskey sour because that lighter style blended irish whiskey doesn't can't contend as well with the lemon as you know as a a good strong american with all that wood and spice and um vanilla you know um, that's a great point, do, right?
0: Like that we are, you know, we're, it's called a whiskey sour, but across the board, it's generally understood that we're talking an American style, right? And, and, and just because of, like you said, those, those sweeter characteristics that it has versus something from across the Atlantic.
1: Sweeter and stronger. Um, you know, I like there's certain Scotch whiskeys, I think make phenomenal I love. I love an Isle malt in a Scotch and then a, a whiskey sour that that's going to punch through and and create that complexity of of flavor or even, you know, or a red breast of, you know, pot still Irish pot still whiskey makes it great because it's got that, that heft to it that punches through. It's all about contending with the citrus.
0: Yeah. Those, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And maybe, you know, something we'll explore in a little while too, when it comes to, to riffs. Um, But you had led us into lemon. You'd explored the topic of fresh is best and I think something that I would like us to cover today because you mentioned that you know you work with Fresh Victor that that pres- provides wonderful different um, mixes that are you know without trying to be reductive here but like plug and play where you can add a certain volume of spirit add certain amount of the mixer and these are made using fresh juices and they're incredible we've been big fans at vine Bear for a long time and I think that's relevant to this conversation because that is the evolution of, of these um kind of cocktail mixers, sours. That's where we're going. But can you can you highlight some of the challenges and and why perhaps many folks out there might have had, you know, not even just the sour mix that we're talking about before, but like a ready-to-drink cocktail that's flavored as a sour or or contains, you know, quote unquote citrus, and it just fly so wide of the mark like what's what's the challenge there and um and and if you can tell us like how how yourselves how you're kind of overcoming that to arrive at that product that as i say you know we're big fans of at fine pair
1: well i think uh a a lot of it comes down it's funny like i I always say when back in mid-2000s when i was traveling the country I was i was representing square one organic spirits and um Allison, the owner, was sending me to these different markets, which was really good timing for me because at the time Elixir was getting uh, a lot of attention in the press, and uh, and those are early days of the whole cocktail renaissance, if you will. And so I would, meanwhile, I like I, my bar would be getting great press, and then I'd pop into Chicago or I'd pop into Washington D.C. and I'd get to meet all of these, you know, I'd get to meet the, all these top people that I wouldn't have met if I weren't traveling like that. And I, and I would go to Chicago and meet Charles Jolie and go meet Derek Brown and Gina, Cher Savani in DC and Jackson Cannon in Boston. And, you know, in each of these markets, there were five, 10 people doing something like I was in San Francisco. And I was like those people knew what they were doing, but as I was getting introduced to accounts for square one, I was teaching bartenders how to squeeze lines and, and make simple syrup. And that evolved into of course, obviously, every good bartender getting that and, and getting away from shelf stable mixes and making actual fresh sour, whether it was by creating a house made sour mix or making each drink a la minute with fresh juice. That was the core lesson of teaching people that. And that was just, you know, a little over 10 years ago. And so that evolved with the boom of cocktails to the customer is getting that lesson next to, you know, the point where I have an entire business dedicated to just teaching consumers about that, as I used to teach pros. And as much as I realized in teaching all of these consumers uh, in these classes, how to make a a great sour drink, whether it was a margarita, a daiquiri or a whiskey sour, I realized that ultimately they'll, they'll be as geeked out about it and learning as they want, but when they get home, I don't know if it's just an American thing or a human thing, but we're all pretty lazy. (laughs) So (laughs) actually, actually cutting a piece of citrus in half and having a, 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 you know, squeezing that into juice and measuring it and then making simple syrup and, and then balancing it and getting it just right. Like if you're not into the geekiness of actually making a drink, you're not going to enjoy all of those steps as simple as they are. And so uh, the you know the time was right for something like fresh victor and and being able to have that freshness and and I and I think that it 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 was also that it's it's not just the cocktail thing it's the overall culinary boom, ev- everybody being interested in their food and their flavor and everything from wine to tonic to, you know, kombucha, understanding yeah. flavor and. So people really understanding and that and, and taking back control of the, the natural um, aspect of their food. I think, you know, everybody wants all natural in what they're, what they're going for, but they also want convenience. So the, yeah. the era of the sour mix from the mid 20th century to today was all about the convenience and flavor and quality was always secondary or tertiary or worse. And we're just getting away from that. So... I, I think, you know, sour is such a big thing for people in a lot of food and drink, and understanding it is not as important to them as actually getting it.
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned as well, yeah, Fresh, Fresh Victor also contains the, the, the sweetening agent, so it's, you know, it's good to go. What, what are we expecting coming back to the whiskey sour? Is this a standard um, simple syrup? What's, what's, what's kind of the norm and what's your preference here? Well, the simple
1: syrup, simple syrup is definitely the norm. I, um, and, and I even lean on that again, as an operator of, of speaking of how we do things at, at, at um, Elixir is that that's, that's our norm. Uh, I did do a lot of early recipes with powdered sugar. Jerry Thomas mentions yep. powdered sugar. And I think it actually powdered sugar does make a, a textural difference when, you know, obviously it's as. Quick, when I mean, you're going to get a good shake on there, it's it's quick at breaking down as as simple syrup is, and that's why we make simple syrup and make it liquid soluble and quick and efficient. Um, and I think it changes the texture quite a bit. But again, speaking as an operator. It's a mess to try to keep powdered sugar behind yep. the bar, <laughs> yeah, and have it, you know, and have it not look, you know. Once you get any, a a wet spoon into it or however you're going to put it in your drink, you know, you get clunky and yeah, it's just not it's not worth having in the operating environment. But when I'm, to be honest, when I'm at home, if I'm making something, I I would I would use powdered, You'd use sugar, powdered sugar because interesting. it's interesting because I don't. I mean that like these days I keep a lot of. Syrups around because I'm constantly doing drink development for Fresh Victor. But um, prior to that, and uh, you know, I really wouldn't keep simple syrup around much. So, but it's a much actual easier, faster thing to throw a spoonful of powdered sugar in the drink and shake it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a great point that you mentioned too, where it's like there are things you can do at home and there are things that make more practical sense as a bar. Um, going back to that that recipe, you know that OG recipe there. Briefly, I was looking over that today, and it doesn't it mention dissolving first in in seltzer water, uh, but then it is a shaken drink? Like, what's going on there? Am I am I is this archaic um, words there? Or what's happening? No, I think
1: well, and this is something I was going to get to a little earlier. Was we look at if it, Jerry Thomas is the one that really you know published it and brought it out right he was bartending in San Francisco and I know from you know the history of San Francisco and, and the Napa soda water and just soda water in general soda water behind bars and siphons could be trusted it was mostly natural um safe whereas we didn't have a whole ton of potable water back then so right. you weren't like just turning on your taps and getting clean hatch hatchy <laughs> water that we <laughs> yeah. get in San Francisco today that's been treated and, you know, thanks to great additions of chlorine and fluoride, but you know, you know, we didn't, they didn't have that. So it wasn't as easy. So soda water was more likely to be behind the bar, bar than flat water as right. far as safe water goes. And that was just a simple operating thing. And and I also think that I always look at things like where citrus comes from, right in California, we grow a lot of lemons, um, but we don't grow limes. All of our limes pretty much come from Colima, from Mexico. Um, the Persian limes that we see everywhere all over the United States, because we don't really grow limes in many places in the United States. We grow grapefruit in Texas and somewhat in Florida and tons of oranges in Florida and some oranges in California too. But limes pretty much come from Mexico and you know, they come, they're grown in the Caribbean as well. But out here, when Thomas was bartending in San Francisco and during the Silver Rush, Uh, you know, that was what he could probably get by walking out the door. (laughs) I don't know that, you know, these days you can find lemon trees all over San Francisco. I don't know that there were, uh, you know, back then, but Mm -hmm. especially, especially since we burned down every few years, but, um, but they were California and they were what's available. So I think you have to always look at what's available. And I think that's, again, this is just me speculating, being the owner of a the second oldest saloon in San Francisco and being a history buff and such <laughs> uh, I believe that the lemon aspect was was kind of driven by Thomas being bar- a bartender in California making sours.
0: Yeah, that, that that's a great point and you know, I think so easy for us to forget the context just like myself there with the the seltzer water right that because these these recipes okay, they've changed slightly over time but they the essence is still there and the fact that they hold up makes us or there's a danger of us forgetting just exactly the the surroundings and the time and the period and things like that and i guess we speak about it more on this show when it comes to how ingredients change but yeah just something so simple as as potable water
1: people when people joke about you know we talk about the story of the cocktail and people drinking them as an eye opener in the morning again that's because they didn't have potable water they didn't have starbucks
0: crazy times um before we before we depart from the, the simple syrup here, just want to double check are we talking equal parts or is this one of those drinks where perhaps you you might be tempted to go more of a two to one? Um, would there be any reason for that?
1: Yeah you know going to two, two to one I know again depending on what your, your base sugar is but you know if you're using granulated sugar and this is what we do at Elixir we do a basic one-to- one granulated sugar simple. Um, I know a lot of other bars like to go with a two-to-one rich and using something like a Demerara. We keep that around and we use that for particular drinks. It's not our go-to syrup at the bar because, um, you know, when you get into the Demerara, you're getting the richness from the additional molasses and the sugar. But, and when you go to two-to-one, you're getting a significant bump in texture. Um, and especially if you're going to add any gum, arabic, can use a gum syrup, but um, that you know, in, in the case of the reason we keep the one-to-one and the two-to-one is because in the one-to-one, we're usually just looking for sweetness. We're looking for balance, a little touch of it here and there, a little pop, um, or a full, you know, three-quarter an ounce, depending on the drink. And when we're using demerara, we're, we're we're looking for usually more balance and texture. Um, some, and sometimes the, the richness of flavor with the molasses. So each syrup has a different, application, but the way we do it is just a simple one-to-one mm-hmm. in our whiskey sours.
0: And then finally, because we have covered the egg white, um, simple yes or no in, in your ideal, in your version of this drink, are we including? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: But again, po- always pose to the customer as an option.
0: Right. So when it's when you're making for someone, we're asking, when you're making for yourself, yes, absolutely. and so, Yeah. And so... Can you therefore talk us through, you know, bringing everything back here, tying everything together, all the components we just spoke about, but also um, preparation. Can you walk us through your ideal for this drink when you're making it and, um, yeah, highlighting, calling out ingredients if you wish to for that and also, yeah, the the preparation start to finish?
1: Well, I would start with uh, um, your shaker. You know, I find most people have a combination shaker a three-part shaker. I, I keep a Boston shaker in my kitchen. So I start with that. And um, as we train my staff and such, you know, you start with the cheap ing- ingredients and end up with the booze. And, um, you know, the, I guess the general idea is if you make the mistake, you don't lose the money. But when you're making drinks at o- at home, as I always teach in my classes, I always say, drink your mistakes. Best one more jerky mistakes. Um, so I would, I would start with my, um, lemon juice. So I'd usually start by cutting a lemon and fresh, squeezing lemon juice and, and measuring out an ounce because you'd never have, uh, you know, inconsistency of produce it means inconsistency of a quantity of juice, but the quantity of juice is always consistent. So starting with an ounce of juice. And I would sweeten that with about three quarters of an ounce of um, one-to-one simple syrup to again, allow that for that sour to lean a little bit sour. And then on top of that, I'm putting two ounces of a 90 to hundred proof American whiskey for, um, generally a rye in my case or high rye bourbon, as I mentioned. And then about three quarters of an ounce of egg white and generally if you're getting a large egg, uh, which most eggs in the supermarkets are large eggs, that's going to produce about an ounce of egg white, and which is fine and doable. It's going to give you plenty of froth and and texture, and that's generally what I'm doing at home because I'm uh, I, again I'm not keep, keeping a container of egg whites around. No. just <laughs> and, eggs. and I'm not going to separate it out a quarter ounce of egg white to get that three quarter. <laughs> So I'll crack an egg and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put the egg white in there, but in the bar, we do keep egg whites in a container and we're measuring out three quarters of an ounce. Cause I think that's actually kind of perfect. The perfect measure to give you the froth and viscosity that you need. Um, and then I, from there, I, uh, I do a dry shake. I know there's been a lot of controversy about dry versus wet shake and order and all that, but mm-hmm. I, I like, I do a, a dry shake first and I just do it real Kind of quick because when you when you do shake uh do a dry shake with a any kind of shaker i guess you, you, there is a gas that's produced that will push the shaker open mm. so you don't want to shake it for too long and have it pop open get a get your cocktail all over yourself so just just enough to break that up and emulsify it and then throw the ice plenty of ice in give it a really good hard shake and then i like my sour up not on the rocks a lot of people prefer it on the rocks, but I put it generally up in a double old fashion, um, wow. obviously can be served on the stem, a mm-hmm. uh, very elegant preparation for it, but, uh, I do it on, up in, in, a rocks glass and I like just a maraschino cherry, um, or, you know, an morena or some nice cocktail cherry. Mm-hmm. If I'm really kind of treating myself well, I'll put it on a pick. Otherwise, I'll just throw it in there. <laughs> nice. But also a traditional would be uh, like a half wheel of orange slice.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about bitters that we see, you know, in other in other preparations like this on top there or, you know, maybe even an expression of lemon just to double down on that? Is that ever a route you would go? Or I also think that one of the things that maybe does put drinkers off egg white cocktails is sometimes you can smell it right and because it's that the foam is is greeting your nose first um so yeah is are those methods that maybe help kind of soften that blow there
1: well i think that the use of any kind of expelled oil over the egg white will diminish the foam it will automatically start breaking the foam down okay and so that changes that and uh, so it's certainly not traditional. I've okay. seen people do it. Um, I think it's, it's defeating in that, you know, it destroys the foam and, uh, use of bitters. I think, you know, I see it, I see it often in the press or you know, write something about a whiskey sour and they'll say Angostura. It's certainly not traditional, mm-hmm. but it works. You know, if you, if you look at Angostura's worn baking spice. It, it always works with whiskey, you know, it always works with American whiskey and it certainly give, does deliver a nice spiciness, boost of spiciness to the, to the sours, um, works great with the, with the lemon. So it works. It's not traditional mm-hmm. or, or standard. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And if, if I were to serve somebody it, I would certainly point out that it was in there. Yeah. Cause it's different.
0: I think that's maybe something that, that drinks media has to answer for, right? You know, this kind of um, cappuccino artification of yeah. bitter on top of cocktails. And, like, let's be honest, cocktail photography has come on so such a long way, and it's amazing. We're at an amazing point right now, and those things do look great in, in photos. So maybe, you know, that's why we start to – there's a bit of a pro- proliferation of it.
1: Yeah, and it might be also a bit of – visual confusion people could because the pisco sour is so visually iconic being yeah. up with with bitters and the swirl or the three dots and you know they may say think some people may think in, in their ignorance that it applies to all sours. When in fact it's a pisco sour thing. Mm-hmm it's not a whiskey sour thing
0: <laughs> and of course we have covered that episode before folks if you haven't listened to that one uh, check that one out in in the old cocktail college archives um so I think we've I think we've pretty extensively covered this this cocktail the whiskey sour here but uh w- wondering if you have any final thoughts on the drink today or today's conversation that we should add
1: it's just that I think people uh, should not like these, these concepts are fairly simple. And once you understand them and and embrace them, you can really see how you look on any menu. And and if you see, you know, whiskey, lemon and a sweetener, you're like, and then whatever else is on there, you're like, okay, this is just a glorified whiskey sour. And you can make that connection and say, what are these things that they're throwing on top of the, of the whiskey sour? How that's, how's that going to change the drink? And is that drink going to be for me? And you're going to see that in so many, so many menus i'm going to see so many things that are just based on a whiskey sour as with anything essential like understanding how to make a great whiskey sour and and appreciating it for what it is uh is fundamental to understanding all sour infused or sour inspired cocktails
0: yeah i think that's i think that's a real great point there you know learn the classics and learn the classic techniques before you're going to move on I guess just to also circle back to the beginning, I was mentioning once upon a time in Hollywood there, maybe uh, one final thought on the whiskey sour too is that if you are going to be on camera filming a movie the next day, drinking eight whiskey sours the night before is probably not the way to go. (laughs) Well, that was the whiskey sour. And now it's time to get to know yourself, a little bit more and introduce our final segment of the show here with our final quick hit questions. And uh, yeah, as I like to say, starting as is customary with question number one, um, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? I'm not sure if we even have to answer this one, but uh, let's <laughs> let's go through it.
1: Well, as a, a, a whiskey bar, we have over 600 bottles of whiskey, but I would have to say about 60 to 70% of that whiskey is American whiskey and probably 60 to 70% of that is bourbon. So mostly bourbon, mostly bourbon. that, that ties directly really to the fact that Elixir is a historic old west saloon. And I have found that that works, uh, the best with the concept of the bar. Personally, I'm much more of a malt drinker. Um, and one of these days I would like to open a malt bar, but, um, most of our Customers come in. I've got amazing malts and Scotch and both Irish and Australian, all kinds of malts. But most of our customers are coming in looking for bourbon.
0: Mm-hmm. Question number two: Which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? I, you
1: know, I was, I was thinking about this, and it's undervalued. Uh, I, what I want to say is a jigger, and it's not. I th- I say undervalued because I think so many bartenders that they don't really understand it. And because there are so many jigger designs now, and you have everything from the, 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 just the classic hourglass shape where you need three or four of them to get all the different measures, um, to the more modern designs that have, whether it's etched inside the, the, the jigger, or the pony, or it's like see-through and you can see the lines. So you basically have one tool where Mm -hmm. you can get all of these different measures. I think that, um, I personally at my bar, I leave it to my bartenders discretion of how they like to work behind the bar and what they want to use rather than mandate. This is the jigger we're using in, in the bar, but I want to make sure that everybody's educated on, you know, proper use of a jigger and understanding the getting the right measure and, and the meniscus and, mm-hmm. um, and I, so I think it's, it's a combination of undervalued and, and misunderstood uh, yeah. when you're looking for specs and, and it's, uh, I, I do this all the time now with, I mean, in, in building any cocktail, when you are specking out a drink and, and coming up with the final version, it, it so often comes down to the difference of a quarter or a half ounce of one thing over another. or or what, or, you know, any one ingredient and and that quarter half ounce difference can make a tremendous difference in the flavor of the drink. Mm -hmm. And that some people will say say it could be overly geeky, um, but it's true when you're talking about specificity of nailing it, it comes down to that. And if you don't have proper control of your jigger and understanding of the jigger that you're using and how to get the most out of it, you can't nail that
0: specificity. Question number three for us, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry?
1: I would say it's hire good people. And that's speaking as a as a manager or an owner, I spun my wheels in the first few years of business because I was so caught up in just being open and staying open and figuring stuff out that I I hired a bunch of people that were like, it was, I was kind of at the school, like, Oh, you, you bartended before. Okay. When can you start? And I didn't put as much time into interviewing people. Well, checking their references, getting to understand who they were as a person. And of course that all evolves over the time being an owner that you realize, that you make those mistakes. And it was in my, about my second year. Um, When a friend of mine from outside the business said that like you need to hire good people because at the end of the day, you you could make the most complex spreadsheet about running your business, but if you don't have good people, it's going to cause every other kind of problem you're going to have. And it can all go back to that. And in 2005, I ended up having a pulmonary embolism and almost died. And I was in the hospital and I had already decided to make some major changes to the bar including writing my first cocktail menu and you know when i opened it was a shot and beer bar and um i was just trying to be a neighborhood spot real casual easy i had no mixology dreams i had never even heard the word mixology but uh i decided but i had come out of the kitchen and my my whole background was i've been in worked in 18 bars and restaurants before i opened my own Um, but I was more culinarily minded. I'm like, I just said, you know, I'm going to make really good drinks and I'm going to get people, really good people to make them. And when I came out of the highest hospital, I fired two thirds of my staff. I wrote, I put out my first cocktail menu. I raised all my prices with bad staff come bad customers. So when you get rid of the bad staff, you get rid of the bad customers Mm -hmm. and my whole business turned around in six months. Wow. And And I never looked back. And now my team, my team is great. I made it through the pandemic with them. My managers have been with me for 14 years. I've got one bartender's been with me 12, another's five. So when you have good, when you hire good people and you treat them well, they stick with you. It makes life a lot easier.
0: <laughs> yeah. Incredible stuff right there. Um, and yeah, those those longer stints are definitely a testament to the the working environment and, and the, a bar itself for sure. Um, question number four here, if you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? I would say,
1: uh, I think it was about 2011. I went to London, um, with my then girlfriend, um, who is now the mother of my child <laughs> <laughs> um and we went to uh see dick bradsel at the pink chihuahua and we went with john the mayor and who ha- also happened to be in town and was hanging out with john john get to got to know angie on that trip and we had some friends of angie's with us and we went to the but the, that's you know had such a coot getting to meet dick bradsel and talk to him and john and i sat at his bar and picked his brain and took photos behind the bar and joked around, and his daughter was working, and we had a great time. And had the Pink Chihuahua cocktail, which is an amazing cocktail if you've never made one.
0: And the Pink Chihuahua Um, here, we're talking the Mexican bar underneath El Camion? Exactly.
1: That's exactly it.
0: Oh, my God. So this is, I got to say here, you know, being a former chef from London, that's where I plied the majority of my trade. The Pink Chihuahua was for us. I don't know how I first got in there because it seemed to be more of a members thing, or you know, anyway, one of our chefs knew someone on the door, we'd go in. This was the place that, I'll be honest, introduced me to Tequila, introduced me to Tequila Sangrita, but also London's not like New York. Place is pretty much shut across the board at 1, 2 a.m. if you're lucky, right? As chefs, yep. we're not getting out of the kitchen until 1. And, and again, London's not that easy to traverse. So if you're in one neighborhood and you want to grab a drink somewhere, now we would finish work, say my weekend's approaching and my weekend happens to be Wednesday and Thursday and I'm finishing my shift on Tuesday and I want to grab a drink, Pinchoal was was literally one of the only spots we could get into, and and I really enjoyed it for that. So sorry to to hijack your answer there, but hearing that name, I've still got my I've still got my members card, which again I'm not sure where I got it from, but I've I've been carrying it around with me now for it's almost ten years since I left London, so I still got it.
1: Wow, that's great. Yeah, we we were, you know, coming up in in the business and becoming friends with with Dale. And, and, Tony, I've got them and, you know, meeting lots of, um, you know, the, the generation before me and as, as my mentors and they all spoke of Dick and I n- never got to meet him. Dick never really traveled as far as I knew he never really came to the U S or anything. And he was like, you know, a bartender's bartender who, who just worked. And, uh, I, John and I were, were plotting to, to go see him. And uh, it just worked out and we had such a good time. I've got good photos of that. And of course, both of them are gone now. And so that's one of those, uh, I'd love to just sit at that bar again with, with both of them. I never, you know, don't really, didn't really know Dick, didn't mm-hmm. know him personally, but he, as the, you know, the, the host and the pro he was, he just, he just latched onto me and John. We had such a great time that night. And, Amazing. Uh, All time, great exp- bar experience. What a place, incredible memories. And the, pink, memory, and the pink Chihuahua cocktail, again, the Pink Chihuahua cocktail. I've, I've had it on, on and off my, my menu before, and
0: it's an excellent one. Mm-hmm. Final question for us today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: It would have to be a
0: an old-fashioned, um,
1: and it would be um, just a, a classic Preparation uh, again of a bottled and bond whiskey. Usually, I like a bottom bond Evan Williams as a, as the base. Um, just a, a bar spoon of one to one simple syrup and a couple dashes of Angostura bitters. And uh, it was a drink that that's not that it was a drink that was like my dad's go to drink, but I when I drink them, I always think of him, and um, that's the way I like it in that preparation. My dad was being a, a young man in the in the fifties. And when he would, when he did drink a bit more, he drank it in that more of that, uh, Pandemus, Club mm-hmm. format, muddled fruit and a splash of soda. And, but, uh, I don't like it that way. So <laughs> I, drink <it> that way. <laughs> I drink it that way. And when, and when I do, I think of my father and that's, uh, who passed 20 years ago. So, um,
0: that's my drink. H fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your wonderful insight on the uh, the whiskey sour. What a showstopper.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vine Pairs Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, Vinepair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I wanna give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Daniel Grinberg, Art Director at Fine Pair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.